Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm Dr. Katie Berlin, and I'm here today with Dr. Deborah Thompson. Welcome, Dr. Thompson. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Dr. Berlin. It's such a pleasure to have you. I've heard so much about you, and this is the first time we're having, getting a chance to chat, so I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, before we get started, would you mind just giving us a little bit of background information about who you are and what it is you do? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, my career is <laughs> a ladder. It's definitely a jungle gym, so I've been all over the place. <laughs> so We like that around here. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well... Uh, before going to vet school, I was teaching and that plays into the conversation. I promise. <laughs> no, like, yeah. Teaching is good. Yep. <laughs> teaching is good. My youngest student was like five, six and my oldest student was 65. Um, wow. and then I go to vet school. I hear about one health and that just blows my mind, honestly. Uh, then I go into clinical medicine. I do an internship, as many of us have had, um, and go into clinical medicine full time. But after my 10 to 12 hour work days, I go home and to relax, I create lessons for children and adults <laughs> about One Health. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you're one of those people that doesn't sleep. <laughs> what is sleep, right? Yeah. Um, and then uh, I, I get to be the AVMA's um, Congressional Policy Fellow. So I move from the West Coast to Washington, D.C., and that's where I am right now. And from there, working in policy, working on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., I learned a lot about communication I'm sure. for people of uh, with substantial influence, let's say that. Um, yeah. So, you know, communicating in the in the classroom, communicating with the general public in the appointment rooms, and then communicating with politicians, uh, you know, it's, it's an art. And from it, that yeah. experience, I wrote a book called The Art of Science Communication, and uh, happy to chat with you about that. And I'll just leave my bio there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that we could probably just talk about, we could just share your stories about all of your different experiences, and that would fill an entire episode. I bet you're one of those people who just always has amazing stories to tell, and I would love to hear some more about a lot of those experiences, and we'll we'll chat some about that. Um, but I actually would like you, if you wouldn't mind, to start with a story, if you could tell us a story that illustrates what you love most about your job. Ooh, I have a lot of different aspects of my job. So in, I'm still <laughs> a clinician. I'm still a practitioner. Um, yeah, I love that. And I, I started uh, One Health Lessons, which is an organization to inspire children and adults around the world to value One Health. You know, the, I'll, I'll stick to the profession as a whole, right? Okay. I remember going to, uh, going to the interview at vet school, and there are two things that I said that still hold true today. I said, number one, I wanted to be a vet because I wanted to take care of animals, but also the people relying on those animals. So be it for emotional support, for food, for milk, you know, whatever it yeah. is. I saw that whole picture, right? I I still see that every single day in the hospital when I'm working. Um, it's not, you know, just the old uh, 
old client who just lost her husband or, you know, or his partner uh, and who's keeping the memory alive through their dog, right? Um, it's yeah. also thinking about uh, what flea and tick preventative do we need to do if there's a toddler running around the house, you know, because their hands go everywhere and you don't want right. to have med. So, you know, that mindset, right? And then the other thing that I really like about the profession as a whole is it's so flexible. It is so flexible. Yeah. You could do whatever I love that. you want in this profession. <laughs> you just have to get some creative juices flowing. I love that so much because that is definitely a soapbox for me too, is that, I mean, my job is hardly what people think of when they think of a veterinarian. And even though I've spent, I spent many years in the clinic, you know, there are, there are so many ways to use what we know. And uh, I love hearing stories from people who have found unique ways to use what they know. Um, and I also uh, love what you said about how you're treating the people as well. And that ties in a lot to what we're talking about today, which is communication. You know, I, I always feel like our real patient is not the patient, it's himself or herself, but the bond between that patient and their people, whether they're a milk producer or a family pet. Um, so I, I love that so much. I think we're really aligned on that. And the communication is absolutely the backbone of that relationship that we have with that family. Today, what I really wanted to talk to you about, which is one of your, um, you know, one of the things that you talk the most about is talking to clients about science. And I think we have all been in that exam room where we're faced with this client who just doesn't want to hear what we have to say about why the pseudoscience or whatever they read on the internet is probably not in the best interest of their pet's health um, or their family's health. So I just want to start off with the big question. Like, why do clients come in and argue with us about science? Like, why don't they just listen? Yes. Okay. And you know, there are two different ways to respond to you could tear out your hair. Yeah. That's option one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or you could Tempting, but an internal deep breath and um, listen to them and say, and think also they mean well, and they're doing the best with what they got. We all typically do the best with what we have, right? With the information yeah. and such. So, I, um, when it comes to those types of conversations, and it gets extra tricky when there are two people in the appointment room, and one person says one thing, and you know how it goes. Yep. <laughs> like, well, which one is it? Yeah, um, it can feel like a face-off real quick. Totally, right? And then you're the third wheel. Like, it's yeah. a face between them, typically. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. I have, I have lived through all of this. But... Yeah, the the goal of having that conversation go towards your favor and the science, uh, towards the favor of science, let's say, is to say, you know, I understand that there's a lot of information out there. I get it. I see it too. What I'm providing to you is information that I have from sources that I really do trust. And I know this from veterinary school. I know this from experience. And here are the websites that I really like. You're welcome to bookmark them. And then, you know, see what their response is. Sometimes they're like, yeah, okay, whatever. And, and then at that point, just print it out so they could leave it in the car and then their spouse or partner can find it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
you got to yeah. use use the idea that there may be multiple people involved. Yeah. Well, use what you got, right? Yeah. So, um, the first thing is to introduce them to what you value as a clinician, as a science professional, right? As a scientist. Um, and then have a conversation. Open up a conversation. And stay even keeled. People pick up on that. That's a key. <laughs> yeah, they do. And it's especially because it's so emotional for so many of them, too. I mean, I I like what you said there at the beginning, where you said you have to assume they're doing the best with what they got. I mean, assuming good intent is so important. Like, we want them to assume that about us. And it's so important that we do them that courtesy back, even if it's not being delivered in a way that makes us feel that way. Oftentimes, it's just an emotional topic. Right. Sometimes clients yeah. say to me, oh, I'm, just, I'm such a bad owner. I'm like, you're not allowed to say that. You're in the vet hospital with me. You yeah. are a good owner because you got here. Yes. You know? That yeah. just annihilates any judgment. Yeah, I love that. The, the judgment it doesn't do anybody any good in this situation. So you think it is, do you think it's possible to change someone's mind who seems like they're, you know, absolutely dedicated to believing this pseudoscience that they read online? Do you think with the right approach, you can actually change people's minds? I think reading the room is definitely the first step in how to change somebody's mind. <laughs> so yeah. um, say, for instance, um, I know, I know raw diet is controversial. Uh, I was taught in a way that raw diets should not be in the home. At, at the time when I was in veterinary school, raw diets were not allowed in the hospital for lots of different reasons. Mm. So taking that as mm -hmm. an example, if somebody you know swears by raw diets because it's best for the, the dog's uh, or cat's intestinal tract, for instance, okay? That, that's, that's the assumption. And, and then another vet has told them that. So keep that in mind. Right. I, then I tell them, you know, the story about my vet school it wasn't allowed through the front door. And it poses a problem for people who are possibly immunocompromised because the bacteria that could be found in this type of meat uh, could be resistant to lots of different medications. And that's a big problem if you allow that into your house. So yeah, that holistic view and bringing up something so simple as just dog food to a family concern, it opens up people's minds. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And it certainly sounds like that approach will go a lot farther rather than getting defensive about how we don't get kickbacks from big pet food. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm still waiting for that check, but um, but definitely arguing about that with these clients is not going to help. <laughs> Been there, done it. <laughs> yeah. So um, when it comes to veterinary teams, because a lot of times it's not the veterinarian who's getting faced with this question first, right? It might be the front desk when somebody calls for a recommendation, or it might, or when the front desk is asking them if they want to take a bag of dog food home. Or it might be the veterinary technician who's taking a history before the exam even starts, and they're getting sort of barraged with this, like, oh, I don't believe in, uh, I don't think a Lyme vaccine is safe for my dog. I read it online. And so the entire team obviously has to know how to, um, to communicate with clients about this stuff. 
Um, do you think it's possible for vet teams to sort of preemptively get ahead of this by either um, talking to clients a certain way from the beginning or having specific training about it so that they can sort of head this off at the pass so it doesn't turn into a big thing? Yeah, such good questions, Katie. Such good questions. Um, yes, and in the science communication world, there are specific terms for this uh, technique to just nip something in the bud before it actually grows. Uh, but mm-hmm. I'll forget the jargon uh, at this point, and let's just focus on the content. So, um, first off, huge shout out to front desk folks. Right. Oh my gosh. I know it's such a hard job (laughs) like thank you guys (laughs) thank you thank you you so much for what you do Um, yes you are what makes a hospital because you are the the front lines for the good the bad the ugly Um, as veterinarians I think I can speak for all veterinarians we value you because you make oh yeah make us <laughs> and then the tech you're like our human shields <laughs> you are our shield bravo yeah. to you um and then the technicians we simply we veterinarians cannot do our jobs without you so no, absolutely truly truly value the whole team and definitely what you said before katie like was perfect because it really is educating the public our clients before they get to the vet um and so this is what I typically say. If, they, if you see that there are concerns from the owner about a vaccine, um, say like rabies vaccine, something that's a core vaccine that you need, you need. Um, so, you know, one thing you could say, well, it's a legal thing, we have to. Um, but another thing that's really important to mention is that all vaccines, all medications, anything you put in your body has possible side effects. That's just the way it goes. You know, just say it matter-of-factly. That's just the way it goes. So let's review possible side effects of vaccines. If you see any sleepiness or decreased appetite, not a big deal. If you see facial swelling, problems breathing, hives, or vomiting, that's when you get on the phone and you call us. Or if we're closed, you know, this other number, a local ER. Chances are we're not dealing with it, but it's always good to review and have a conversation about this before we get started. And that's what I often say. Did you see I was kind of on autopilot there? Because it's like, mm-hmm. like yep. It's like a on. flight attendant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's so true. Like we are supposed to talk about vaccine reactions with everybody. And I I don't think we do that. And if we do, it's often because the client has asked, um, will I notice anything after this? Or I'm worried about giving her three vaccines at one time. Um, and I, I mean, I know there was a study recently that, um, you know, vaccine hesitancy has actually, you know, increased since it, it was increasing before COVID. I don't know if anybody studied that in pet owners since COVID. It's probably a little too soon. But I mean, even before COVID, the vaccine hesitancy in people seemed to be spreading into the veterinary world. And so um, now I can only imagine after the last two years, um, what people are thinking when they come in and we're recommending all these vaccines, even though they're not new and they're so safe. So, and then, right. So it's so safe as a general concept, mm -hmm. right? Outliers. So what they pick up are those outliers. And I think it hurt us if we ignore those because then they're like, wait Mm -hmm. a second, 
Again, I heard this from my friend. You're telling me my yeah. friend's You know what I mean? Then, then the ball yeah. gets But if we can just nip it in the bud and just say, I say this to everybody, so just hear me out. Signs of vaccine reactions are rare, but blah, 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 and then do your thing. Um, yeah. Then they feel like they got it covered and, and CYA, put it in your soap. When it comes to yeah. um, how I put oh, it, gosh, yes. I say review possible signs of vaccine reactions. And then I also, especially for little, ki- little kids, <laughs> little dogs, like chihuahuas, like, like your pup. Yes. <laughs> um, I would say, you know, we can space them out. We don't have to mm-hmm. give so many vaccines at once. Just come back in three weeks. And that way you'll see if there's a vaccine reaction and we'll know if it's because of that particular vaccine. And owners typically yeah. do that. I'm surprised with how often they actually do come back because you book yes. that appointment already when they're in the building and that way the dog is conditioned to you know come back get the cookies um get snuggles and then get a little shot this aha podcast is brought to you by care credit care credit understands you're busier today than perhaps ever before to help free up your time the care credit health and pet care credit card allows clients to access a budget-friendly financing experience anytime from anywhere They can learn, see if they pre-qualify, apply, and even pay if approved, all on their own smart device. With just a tap, they have a friendly, contactless way to pay over time for the services and treatments their pet needs. And you get a few more minutes to take care of patients, take care of business, and take care of yourself. That's also nice, too, because you're a lot more likely to get away with one vaccine in a dog who's a little bit scared without, a, you know, without making them more scared. Um, having to do a bunch at one time sometimes goes south. Um, I'm coming from a fear-free hospital, and so definitely splitting vaccines made me really happy for some of those animals. Um, but, yeah, I think a lot of the team probably is kind of they feel like they shouldn't bring up vaccine reactions because it can sound negative. But that's just a perception. And if we sort of treat it matter of factly, like you just did, um, these are really uncommon. The serious ones are really uncommon. But if they happen, we can deal with them. We just have to know about them. And then you need to call us or come right in. I think that's really, really smart advice. We talked earlier about your what you do and um, a lot of the experiences that you've had. And so I wanted to switch tracks a little bit here and ask you, like, you are a science policy advisor. Like, that is amazing. That is an amazing job. And I just want to know what that was like. Like, do you have any stories you can share from doing that job or, or sort of what was your day like doing that? Are you still doing that? Uh, I serve as a technical advisor to a senator uh, right now uh, without naming names. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> serve to help advance legislation, uh, bills, especially focused on One Health. Uh, so okay. so my, as we call it, portfolio on the Hill, it sounds mm-hmm. so elitist. Sounds very um, official. Like, uh, fine, whatever. <laughs> but yeah, my portfolio um, on the Hill, on Capitol Hill, was really One Health. So I, in my policy uh, space, I was handling public health, global health, agriculture. Um, certainly the pandemic fell right in my lap because it yeah. covers everything, right? Yeah. Um, and animal health and well-being because they knew I was a vet. 
And the way I was fortunate enough to get that position was I applied for the AVMA's uh, Congressional Policy Fellowship. And typically they have, well, before, they had three or four fellows at a time. So you were not the only vet on the hill. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but the time that I did it, um, they only chose one. And it honestly completely shocked me that I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm not going to tell them they made a mistake. Yay! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I moved cross-country to go to Washington, D.C. And what happened was AVMA pays for the year. Um, you have a set salary. Mm-hmm. And then they don't tell you what to do or what not to do. They don't tell you what to work on or what not to work on. You are not a lobbyist with AVMA. But... Um, AAAS, which is the American Association for the Advancement of Science, those are the folks who write or who uh, publish the science magazine or the science journal. Um, Okay. So those folks are the ones who train you, the fellow, along with about 200 other people who are often not in veterinary medicine. They could be particle physicists or chemists or evolutionary biologists or, you know, PhDs you know, everywhere else. Um, And they train you how to work in policy, how to work on the Hill. And then you have this uh, opportunity to have interviews with lots of different offices on the Hill that have that desk space for you. And uh, you share what you would like to work on in the policy space. And they tell you what they need from you. And if it's a match, Awesome. So it's just like a job interview. But you arrive in Washington, D.C. without knowing where you're going to be working. You know it's going to be somewhere in the Senate or in the House of Representatives, but you don't know where. And you don't know exactly what you'll be working on, which is all that more exciting. That is really exciting. And to somebody like me who likes to plan, that's also very scary. (laughs) So kudos to you for just like crossing the country and just like getting to work. So... (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so where did you end up working? Oh, I worked in Senator Dianne Feinstein's office. Ah, uh, okay. From California. All right. Very cool. And do you, so this is my big question for you because, um, I feel like when it comes to exam room communication, there is a little bit of politics involved, right? I mean, you have to make sure that you're reading the room, like you said, and communicating in a way that is um, not inflammatory and not reactive. But I feel like time, you know, take that times a billion, and that's got to be working on Capitol Hill. So did you learn lessons from that position and from the communication that you had to do there that you can carry over into practice? Uh, yes, 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 yes to everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, oh my goodness, the stories that I have. Reading the room is number one. I I always tell, I have a lot of interns with me for, uh, with One Health Lessons with that organization. And I tell them that the very first step to strong communication with another person is to actively listen. Don't be the first one in the room to talk. Listen see how they say things, see what they avoid saying, see, think through why they could be avoiding saying certain things. Is it because of fear? Is it because of ulterior motives? You know, depending on where where I am, in what type of room I am in. 
Um, but actively listening is by far the first step. Um, then when it comes to the hill in particular, um, I was in a position where I was receiving. So I was in the room with a lot of constituents. So the voters coming in, they could be scientists, physicians, veterinarians, engineers. They come in, they pitch their idea for, for a bill that could hopefully become a law. Um, and they give us the information that uh, they have at their disposal with their one pagers. So the one pieces of paper with all the important information, you know, just like client handouts. Right. Um, and then, uh, and then sometimes, oftentimes, the scientists of any background they miss the mark. So after the meeting is done, my colleagues come to me. They're like, "Deb, can you just translate that for us?" What does that mean for us? And that happened so many times that I was just writing notes, and that's what this book came down to. Yeah, was, the the art and science of communicate, the art of science communication, which we'll link to in the show notes. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but ultimately, it was just time after time the the mark was missed. But I saw that there was good intention. I saw what they wanted to do, but they didn't take that last step, or they said it a way that was confusing for the folks that speak policy um, right. that I, I thought, okay, there needs to be a guide for people. Yeah. And that's the guide that I realized. For sure. That really fills a need because, and it's, it's something that the whole team could, could read or could share. Um, and I, yeah, that's something we don't learn in vet school. I mean, we might have classes that in discuss communication, but there's so little of that. We're talking to our peers, and so there's so little exposure to that situation until we get out, and then we're like, now what? Oh my gosh, Katie, I had flashbacks just now. <laughs> <laughs> I remember in, in a final year of vet school, they recorded, they had a video camera up in the room, and they're like, okay, go in. And you're just one-on-one -on -one with the client. Fine. So I do my thing. I come out. And then the only feedback was, okay, that was good. And then I'm going to be graduating in how many months? Like, yeah. <laughs> and then in this book, the entire middle section is also how to communicate with clients about science. So it's not just policymakers. That's the third, that's the end of the book. But the middle, the chunk of the book is all about how to communicate science with the general public. And I talk oh, about yeah. living in veterinary medicine in a good part of that book. I I, yeah, I love that. I'm definitely going to have to check out the book myself because um, I I you know I'm not in the clinic right now, but I feel like this those skills are essential for just like living today because we know as veterinary professionals we know so much and we forget that the people who are leaving like scary comments on the internet on news sites don't necessarily have the background we have. And the internet, I feel like just, it sends, I, I love social media. Like I am actually, a, I love social media. I can't stop loving it, even though sometimes I also hate it. But I do feel like sometimes we just go into that exam room now armed for battle because we feel like the people that we've been seeing leaving these comments, who sometimes are our friends, which is like the worst feeling, then are also in the exam room facing us. And we just go in with that like internet warrior attitude. Do you feel like that's true? 
I totally hear you. And I think it's important to say, remember how uh, that the sometimes owners are like, oh, I'm such a bad owner. And I'm like, no, 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 you're in the vet hospital. You are not a bad owner. Like, you yeah. got it. Yeah. So I feel like if there are people coming to the veterinary hospital and they have information that's not completely accurate, that's misinformation. So I said I wouldn't go into jargon, but let me just mention this because it is all over the news and people say disinformation and misinformation. So let's just break that out a little bit. Okay. Misinformation, misinformation is that unintentional, uh, unintentional, oopsie, I got something wrong, but it's mostly right, but I got confused on something. Yeah. Dis- disinformation is purposeful feeding falsity, like feeding mm-hmm. error to the general right. public. And that's a form of manipulation. Okay. Um, and that's purposeful. So misinformation, that can be managed because the intentions are good. Disinformation comes from a not a good source. I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes a big difference as far as it's like you said, listen to what the client is saying and not saying, and they may tell you where they've heard this information. Um, and that can also give you an idea of how to approach the conversation. Um, because maybe their aunt told them something about her dog that she heard from her cousin's vet. And then it's like, it's probably not going to be quite accurate. And then it's different if they've been going to this, you know, a certain unnamed website about dog food or something, and they've been fed information that is absolutely not true. And that requires a different conversation. Um, and neither one requires judgment because they don't know. So yeah, I, I, that's a really good distinction. I did not know the difference between those two words and I've probably been using them interchangeably, which is clearly not right. So I'm, I'm glad I learned something. (laughs) Um, and I felt like worth worth saying it yeah <laughs> absolutely yes that was really really helpful um and just reminds us to make a distinction when we're talking to people that not all infor- not all incorrect information is coming from the same place or the same intent um so okay so the internet uh can be our friend and it can be our enemy and when it comes to science information a lot of times we feel like we're sort of beating our heads against the wall battling this constant influx of both misinformation and disinformation. How do you have any tips for how we can kind of use the internet to our advantage to help with these science communications rather than blaming it? Yeah. So what I would say is, um, I don't know, say congestive heart failure. Okay. Something, something complicated that stresses the owners out legitimately. Like that's a legitimate concern, right? Yes. Very scary. They can go on lots of different websites and get lots of different information. But I do like veterinarypartner.com. I do like AHA. Yay! I do like associated with a veterinary school. Yeah. And I tell people, I print out, you know, the one, at least the first page of the website. And I tell people, bookmark this page. Use technology to your advantage. Bookmark this page. Or even better, if you think that <clears throat> we're dealing with congestive heart failure, you have to go back and do a, you know, you, you know, you hear, you sculpt something and it's not quite right in those lungs. Uh, you take them back for that ultrasound and, you know, possibly tapping. Have somebody go back in if you physically can't and uh, have them say, 
because she suspects it's this, can you read this information and the doctor will be back in very shortly and we'll talk you through this. But this is some information I want to provide to you. Um, if you think, totally depends on the owner. If you think that it's better received from the veterinarian, then you could do that. But at least they're not sitting alone in the room, freaking out, worrying about their dog that has yeah. breathing, right? At least they have some yeah. answer. And that takes care of some of the stress in in a way because answers can uh removes one unknown variable and that takes care of a bit of stress even though congestion of heart failure is a serious matter that is such great advice and i'm just thinking about that from a position as somebody who's been a patient in a lot of doctor's offices recently i've been battling with some with like a mystery neurologic thing and it it's so scary and until you're the patient or, say, the, the owner of the patient um, and you're sitting in that room alone and you don't have answers and you're waiting half an hour for the doctor to show up that you waited weeks to get in with and you don't feel good and you're worried that they're going to tell you it's something bad and then you're worried that they're not going to be able to tell you anything and you're still not going to feel good. It is one of the scariest experiences imaginable. And we often don't, I think... We might update the owners if we're, you know, if we're doing our jobs well, we should update them periodically and make sure they're not just sitting in there with no information. But we don't think about that. And what are they going to do if we don't give them a website? They're going to Google. And then who knows what's going to show up. I know this because I was Googling because I have spent a lot of time Googling because nobody said, here, I know we're not finding answers. Here's a website I really like if you want to read about the, some of the differentials that we're talking about. And nobody said that to me. And, um, you know, I wanted scientific papers, but I would have taken a website. And um, that is incredible advice that seems so simple and is something we just don't do. So yeah, we oftentimes just need to get it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. And I'm sorry to hear about your condition. I know it's, it's yeah. incredibly stressful. And it's not just for the patient itself, it's for the people who love those patients. Um, so be it whatever species we're talking about. Um, so it's really exactly. matter and it ties into, you know, just seeing, not just seeing the patient, but the whole environment around the patient. Yeah, for sure. And offering websites before the client has a chance to go home and Google or to sit in the exam room and Google because they don't know what else to do. Um, giving them sources of good information before they even might ask, because a lot of people won't even ask. That is a huge way, it seems like, to sort of get ahead of this problem. So uh, that's fantastic advice. And um, I'm going to take that under advisement too. And next time I'm at the doctor, I'm going to ask them, that's the resource I can look at. And they'll probably be like, what? <laughs> no, listen to me. <laughs> Not helpful not helpful. So, um, so that's great. I'm going to remember that myself. I have one more question for you. Um, we, we've talked about a lot today, a lot of, you know, sort of ways that we can refine our communication and our approach, but when it comes to the entire veterinary team working together to, you know, to sort of modify that approach and talk to clients about science in a way that's effective and productive and empathetic, what would you say is there, is there one step that any practice or team could take tomorrow to start doing that? I think a good guiding principle 
is to stay humble and admit when you don't know the answer. Because say for instance, is sometimes there are cases that I have where we in veterinary medicine in 2022 don't know really the ultimate reason for this idiopathic whatever it is, right? So at that yeah. point, say it. You don't have to say, I don't know. Say, veterinary medicine, we don't know this. But we at least know how to manage it. Um, maybe in 10 years is going to be different. But at this time, that's where science is at and that's where research is at. And so admit when you don't know something or admit that, admit or just have a clear conversation of what can be done, what can't be done and set the expectations very early on. Because just like, you know, setting, a, setting up for a new job, have those expectations set very early on. That's the basis of any strong relationship. Right. So I would yeah, say being clear, be clear. Yeah. Yeah. And, and respect uh, of the other person for sure. Yeah. I think that is um, probably the best advice for vet teams and for us as humans <laughs> when it comes to any kind of crucial conversation, any kind of tough conversation that could come up, um, be clear, set expectations and be respectful Sounds simple, but sometimes takes some effort. <laughs> Dr. Thompson, thank you so much. You are very wise and um, very, I am very excited to check out your book. Um, like I said, we'll link to it in the show notes because I think it probably is something that almost every veterinary professional could, um, could learn a lot from. And um, it's been really fun talking to you about all of your different roles and adventures and the things that you've done. And I wish we had more time to talk more about it because you're just a really fascinating person. But thank you so much for spending so much time. Thank you so much, Katie, for the kind invitation. It's been such a pleasure. For me, too. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening uh, to Central Line. We'll catch you next time. Hi, everyone. Katie here with Frankie, my little sidekick. Uh, if you're listening and not watching, uh, he's a little chihuahua, and he's usually here with me on my lap making little snuffly noises while we're recording. So he's my little podcasting buddy, um, and he'll probably get restless and jump down here. But I just wanted to, to tell you about this case that I was thinking about the other day. Um, you know how we all have that case that pops into our mind sometimes? And mine is this little white dog that came in, I was probably one or two years out of school, um, and he came in, she came in on a Saturday, uh, she was having trouble urinating, and of course she was one of those little white dogs, like a Bichon, or something where you look at them sideways and they get bladder stones, and sure enough, she had a bladder full of these spiky looking, you know, probably calcium oxalate stones on her radiographs, and um, she couldn't, she basically couldn't pee at all. And her family was this dad and his two kids, and you know they paid in cash. They asked how much everything was. They seemed really worried about her, but also really worried about money. But they wanted to go to the ER. It was Saturday afternoon, and I didn't have the team to do the surgery, so she ended up going to the ER with them. And I, you know, I was honestly surprised that they wanted to go. I had given them a ballpark for how much things would cost, and I would have thought that that would have been financially out of the question for them or that they wouldn't even have wanted to try. Um, and I would have banked on her being euthanized, ultimately, um, which is a shame. 
because while I was writing up charts that afternoon, I got a call from the ER doctor who said that the family had applied for care credit and they'd been approved and the dog was being prepped for surgery. And I think about that case a lot um, now more than a decade later because it taught me something about making assumptions about reading people's intentions as well as their wallets, which we all can have a tendency to do. But that dog was probably saved that day by care credit, but also by the person who thought to offer the care credit. I had not even mentioned it at the appointment, um, maybe because they paid cash or maybe because they seemed so concerned about finances that it didn't even cross my mind that they'd want to try. Um, and sometimes saving lives isn't just about being the person with the scalpel or the person running the anesthesia. It's about being the person who approaches a situation with compassion and gives somebody options that they didn't know they had um, because that person saved that dog that day too. And, you know, studies show, and personal experience, of course, show that moral distress, which is knowing that we can help a patient, but being prevented in some way from doing so, is a really common cause of pretty consequential stress for veterinary professionals. And of course, one of the biggest determinants of whether we can help a patient is whether uh, our clients have the financial means to do so that day. And I can think of dozens of times, probably hundreds of times, where that was a factor you know, I think maybe there was a scenario at least once a day for 12 years like that. And so I just wanted to thank our sponsor, Care Credit, for being there for that little dog and her family and all the dozens to hundreds of other patients who I know I was able to help because of them and because of the CSR teams who guided the clients through the application process and who made sure that they understood all of their options. I, I just really want to thank you for that. And also, I want to thank Care Credit for taking a chance on a brand new podcast uh, where we had zero listeners and zero guests when they signed on. But now we are making these episodes with these amazing guests with so much to share. And I'm just so grateful that Care Credit is here for us at the beginning of this journey. So remember that your clients can learn and they can see if they pre-qualify and they can apply and they can pay all from their smartphone now, which was not the case uh, 12 years ago. So I'm very grateful for that too. And that means that we can all do what we do best, which is uh, go and use our skills to take care of little, little people like my Frankie here. So care credit, thank you. And thanks to all of you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.